Please rise for the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Hear now God's word. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. For the first three Sundays of Advent, we have considered how the coming of Christ into the world brought hope, love, and joy. If you have received this gift of God's Son, then you also have received personal hope, love, and joy. And having received these gifts, to the degree that you have begun to comprehend that gift that is Christ, then the inevitable result will be peace. A peace that is above and beneath everything else that is going on in the world and that is going on in your life. The bombs may be bursting all around you, even right in front of you, but the Prince of Peace is also reigning. Now all of these things, hope, love, joy, and peace, are appropriated by faith, which means that we believe and trust what God says. As a parent comforts a fearful child in a dark room and finally That child settles down, calms down, and finally falls asleep. We recently looked at the story of Jesus. I preached on this at family camp from Mark chapter 4 when the disciples were in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We read this, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, and he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He then arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Peace was appropriated by faith, which gives us eyes to see what we otherwise couldn't see. We walk by faith, not by sight. The most common greeting in the New Testament, uh, mainly from the Apostle Paul, points to the centrality of peace as the gift from God through Jesus Christ. Thirteen times the Apostle Paul opens his letters with this statement, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, Peter and John open and end their letters with grace to you and peace be multiplied, peace to you and all who are in Christ Jesus. And then John, in 2 John, says grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. So this is a theme. This is over and over. This is central to what the gospel does in our lives. 
Now, many people like a version of Christianity that is what they call positive. That is, they don't want to hear about all the negative stuff like sin and blood atonement. They want to hear only about the love of God, and the more general, the better. If we can level it all out and say, well, it doesn't matter which God or whatever, just so everybody is trying to seek the same thing. But you see, that means none of those are true. If, if they're all equal, then, then, then they, none of them are true. That just now becomes a personal crutch. And if it's, good for, if it's true for you, it might not be true for me, but that's okay. You have your own truth. I have my own truth. And that, what that really means is I'm my own God and you're your own God and really none of the gods know what they're talking about. But if it helps you out, go ahead. But if there is one true God and if he has spoken and if he does have a son and if he sent that son, and that's what we're talking about here with Advent, then we're going to have to hear the whole truth. We don't want to just hear about the love of God. The love of God is only seen and known by becoming aware of the so-called negative things. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to do what? To die and to pay for our sins, to, to remove the problem. That is the love. That is the good news. The Bible emphasizes the so-called negative. We have to start with a true diagnosis of our condition before we can appreciate the depth of God's love and the gift of his son and the gift of his rescue. Paul has shown us how our sins lead to separation and death. They separate us from God and they separate us from one another. More than separation, Ephesians 2.14 tells us that there is actual enmity and hostility between us and God because sin is far worse than we imagine. It's ugly. It is devastating. And this is the problem with the whole world. It's your problem. It's my problem. It is the problem. But if we say, no, there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as sin, and we don't need a Savior, now what? We've now gotten, we've, we've put, put to the side the one true diagnosis, and now we're left with what? Nothing. Nothing at all. We get all worked up about this cause or that cause or this issue or that, and it's all changing and fading, and it'll be a whole new set of issues a month from now, a year from now, ten years from now. A lot of the stuff that we're watching on the news, it'll be, it'll be gone in 48 news cycles. It'll just be forgotten completely. And so if we miss what the problem is, we're going to miss what the remedy is. This is the problem of the whole world between classes and races and ethnicities and nations and regions and parties and neighbors and family members. This uh, is true. There is constant strife and enmity. It's true that the world is also full of attempts to remedy the problem, but to no avail. Science, education, technology, diplomacy, all of which have promised great things, none of these have made any real advance in taking away the enmity. If anything, you think things are better now than they were 10 years ago? 20 years ago? Are they better or worse? 
If anything, the enmity has only increased. Sin is the problem, and underneath every sin is pride, and we find this laid out for us in the book of beginnings, Genesis. Man and woman wanted to be autonomous. That is, they wanted to make their own rules. They wanted their own truth. They wanted to be their own authority. Who is God to tell us what to do? Well, the Bible, changing gears just a little bit, uses names and titles to communicate the positions, the work, and the character of those who bear those names. One one of the names that Isaiah gives to the Messiah, was in our text today, is the Prince of Peace. In the historical context, this is the name that would have stirred the hearts and minds of the people in Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, Elder Hill alluded to this this morning in his Sunday school class. In chapter 7, we are told by Isaiah, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of uh, Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it. So that's the context of the statement that we've read in our text today about there's a coming prince of peace. So Isaiah is speaking into a situation that is full of bloodshed and turmoil and invading armies, and he sets before them the hope of a coming Messiah who, among other things, will be the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 9, <clears throat> verse 5 through 7, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And he will be called Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That's what comes and speaks in the middle of this bloodshed. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. It means more than just the absence of strife and war. Shalom means completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment. Now, how much of that does the world have? Now, I would suggest that it has precious little and it is in desperate need of much more. I think it has some because wherever the gospel has gone, it has brought the Prince of Peace with it. And it would take some time to develop and support this argument in light of the fact that all Christians and Christian societies are still in need of much more peace than they have. And I would agree, and the Bible itself agrees, but to the degree the gospel of Christ has been applied individually and corporately, peace has been a consistent byproduct. I know that personally. I know that in my family. I know that in, your, in, in many of your families. I know that in study in history where the gospel's gone. Has it been perfect? No, it's a big, big mess. It's everywhere. This makes a pandemic look like nothing. Sin has permeated everything. The creation, every human being, every institution. And so when the remedy comes, it, it's, it takes a while, but it begins to do its work. It begins to change people. It changes hearts. It changes families. It's dramatic when it comes in its reality. In other words, we need more Christ, not less. And as we look at the world, we, uh, we should be, it, sh- it should be obvious to all that shalom is desperately needed because of man's fall into sin. 
Because of the fall, there's a lack of harmony, wholeness, completeness, and fulfillment almost, well, I'd just say everywhere we look. Because of the fall, we lack peace within ourselves, with our fellow man, with creation, and with God. And so let's look at each of those four. First, on account of sin, man lacks peace with and in himself. In your most honest and candid moments, wouldn't you admit that you are filled with self-doubt and insecurities? And if you're not, then that's an even bigger problem. Don't you hate yourself sometimes? Have you ever thought too little or too much of yourselves? Haven't you wondered how you could think or say or do some of the things you think, say, or do? Like the Apostle Paul, we who are believers are forced to live with this tension of sometimes wanting to do a good thing, but instead doing something evil. And of course, we see the evidence of our physical brokenness and many imperfections as we age or have diseases or death. Can there be any doubt that many times within ourselves we are without peace? Second, on account of sin, man lacks peace with his fellow man. Wherever we look in this world, we find jealousy and covetousness and envy and adultery and hatred and theft and murder and gossip and the like. Because of such sins, people fight and they quarrel with each other. Husbands and wives get divorced. Parents and children are estranged. And nations wage war against each other. James 4 says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war against your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covenant and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, we're selfish. On account of such selfishness, people are divided from each other in terms of language and race and ethnic background and sex and social standing. Politicians promote this division because in exploiting that, they gain advantage and power. Our streets are full of rioting and violence. Our prisons are full of people who have committed crimes against their fellow human beings. The brutality of man against man is really unspeakable, and it is constant. Can there be any doubt of a lack of peace between and among people? Third, on account of sin, man lacks peace even with creation. Immediately after the creation, man found himself in a garden paradise. There was harmony between him and the place where he worked. But after the fall, the ground became cursed. It opposed man instead of helping him. It produced thorns and thistles and weeds rather than easy crops, storms and floods and droughts and fires. Man and beast became enemies. Fourth, on account of sin, man easily lacks peace, especially lacks peace with God. Man's natural sinful state is one of enmity with God. He hates and disobeys God. Romans 8, 6 through 8, for to be carnally, (coughs) excuse me, for to be carnally minded is death, 
But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Since sinful man can't bear to be in the presence of a holy God, he flees from God. Separated, alienated, exiled from God. We see this when our first parents sinned. What's the first thing they did? They hid. They hid from God, who they used to walk with. And later in Genesis, we read in chapter 6, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so on account of sin, there is enmity, not peace, between God and man. Now the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace to this broken world. In Luke 1, 7-9, Zechariah, that was the father of John the Baptist, prophesied regarding the work of his son, saying that he would, quote, give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John the Baptist was pointing the way to the coming Christ, to the coming Messiah. Simeon, you remember the old man in the temple? He's an example. He expected the Christ child to bring peace. And here's what we read from him in Luke 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And and we'll sing Simeon's song at the end of the service today. Simeon, and this was a man just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is, waiting for Christ. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And here's what he said. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. The angels came, and what did they proclaim? They proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And the woman whose faith made her whole was told, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the people who sang about it on Psalm Sunday, when Christ entered Jerusalem, they sang about peace. And overlooking Jerusalem, Jesus wept. Because Jerusalem didn't know that the Messiah would bring her peace. In announcing his imminent departure, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. So Jesus brings peace to these four areas that we've mentioned. First, Jesus establishes peace with man. Here we <clears throat> we think of the wholeness, fullness, and well-being. Isaiah speaks of this when he says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Because of the Messiah, Isaiah can see a time when every person is whole and complete, 
No disease, no sickness, no disabilities, no cancer. Jesus Christ begins that work in us when we receive him. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. That is, brought about peace between us and him through Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus establishes peace among men. Isaiah speaks of this also in chapter 2. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Those who have the peace that Isaiah speaks of live in harmony with their neighbors. In Acts 10, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. I've given examples like this before. I'm sure many of you have experienced the same kind of thing. I've met brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world, from other races, other nationalities, other ethnic backgrounds. The minute they walk into my home, the minute we sit down at a table together, the minute we embrace, the minute we shake hands, all of that goes away. Those those things become not just secondary. They go way down the list. This is my brother and sister in Christ. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And it's true. You say, yeah, but haven't Christians promoted a lot of nonsense and false stuff and regarding and promoted division? Yes. Because every Christian I know is a sinner. And the Bible condemns that even in us, especially in us. Yes, it's hypocritical. That is not what the Bible teaches. When we believe and do what God says to believe and do, we will love our neighbors as ourselves. And we will have peace with our neighbors. That is the gospel. And anything that doesn't do that is not the gospel. It's false. It's a counterfeit. It's a lie. Third, Jesus establishes peace with creation in the messianic kingdom. Isaiah predicted that man will live ultimately in harmony with God's creation. Isaiah 11, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hold. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And fourth, Jesus brings peace between God and man. God has dealt with our external enemy. We read in Romans 16, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, says Paul, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that the enemies of God are now the friends of God. 
Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 8-11, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have the reconciliation. Peace. And in Colossians 1, For it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So there is peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have the words of the Apostle. Christ is our peace. He alone is our peace. Without him there can be no peace, personal or otherwise. The world can make advances in knowledge and science and technology, but it can never solve the fundamental problem. What does he do as the Savior that gives us peace within ourselves, among men and creation and with God You need to realize that in the Old Testament there are three dramatically different pictures of the Messiah. Sometimes he's presented as the warrior king, sometimes as a suffering servant, and sometimes as God himself or the Son of God. But over time, God's Old Testament people forgot or ignored the pictures of the Messiah as a suffering servant or as God himself, and the image of the Messiah they loved the most was that of a warrior king. So by the time Jesus comes, most of the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would defeat and destroy the Roman army and, and, uh, and the, their occupation of Palestine. They were looking for a Messiah who would bring peace with a sword, a shield, and a warrior's boot. But that's not what Isaiah said. Listen as Isaiah tells us exactly what the Messiah does to give and establish peace. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. According to Isaiah, the Prince of Peace brings peace by being pierced and crushed and wounded. His blood shed on the cross gives us peace within ourselves, with our fellow man, with creation, and with God. His blood breaks all the barriers that exist and tears down the walls that have been erected. I want to close by just reading Ephesians 2, 14-18. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both one. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Believers and unbelievers, if you will, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. He's talking about all the Old Testament ceremonies and so forth that Israel had. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. As a result of this peace, which came from the prince, we now see everything in a new way. Our peace in every storm is through Jesus Christ. He has conquered all his and our enemies and made them our footstool, even Satan, and even that great last enemy, which is death. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to confess that I've been pretty depressed as I prepared this sermon on peace. I talked to a friend this morning who texted me and said he was praying for me. And I told him, I said, I've been working. I said, I've been depressed. And I'm having to work on a sermon on peace. So today I'm going to let myself have it. And he said, give it both barrels. So when we're tempted to be depressed, worried, and anxious, we have a place to go for refuge. And we are promised peace that surpasses understanding. Be anxious for nothing, Paul said, but in everything with thanksgiving. By prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to see so that the eyes of our understanding will be enlightened and that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. Help us to comprehend this peace that is ours in Christ and to embrace the communion that you have given all of us together in him. May these truths not remain obscure or on the edge, but may they become central to our thinking and living each day. May they be demonstration demonstrated in our marriages and with our children. And may the world see in us and in our church this gracious work that you have begun in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The opposite of peace is enmity or animosity. Paul said in Romans, the carnal mind is enmity against God. In Ephesians, Paul opened with a prayer asking that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened and that they might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, it requires a supernatural enlightenment to overcome the enmity that naturally exists between us and God. Perhaps I should pause here and ask you if you have had that prayer answered in your life. Has the light come on for you? Has the reality of God's work in your life been powerfully recognized by you and by others? In a world full of despair, Jesus brings hope. In a world full of strife and bitterness, he brings love. 
In a world full of sadness and sorrow, he brings joy. In a world full of conflict, he brings peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. As we come to the Lord's table, I hope you will see it as a place where you and God, along with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, come in peace to commune. He has appointed this table to be a continual reminder of our relation uh, to himself and means of reminding us of the death of Christ through the eating of the flesh of the Lamb of God and the drinking of his blood, the blood of the new covenant. Therefore, God ordained the eating of the peace offering in Israel to be a symbolic expression of peace and fellowship with himself. It was to be eaten before the Lord and with rejoicing. So when we're done, we're going to, after we eat, we're going to sing the doxology and really rejoice. That expression, why? Because there's peace. We're not at war anymore. We're friends. Indeed, Christ himself is our peace, and he has created one new man from us all, thus making peace, that he might reconcile us all to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. Amen. Now, that's time for the Thanksgiving part of this. Let's stand and let the Lord know. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Thank you for speaking so clear and loud and for revealing yourself to us. Indeed, you are faithful, though we are not. You spoke to us in our weakness, and now the joy of the Lord is our strength, for we now rely upon your great power. We are comforted by the fact that there are no promises made by you that will not be performed. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Your word is unalterable, and your power is invincible. And in this truth we find our hope, our assurance, and our strength. You promised us a Savior, and that Savior came. By your purpose and power you sent your Son into the world. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. By your power you made us. By your power you redeemed us. You gave us new hearts. And by your power you shall raise us from the dead, where we will see our Lord in all his majestic glory and live and reign with him forever. Bless now this Lord's day for rest and fellowship and delight. And we pray now that you would would cause us to be thankful and, and thank you now for being with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Amen.